Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, it's Owen Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Sean Fay has become one of the most prominent trans writers, trans public figures, frankly, in Britain at a time of a very, very intense and unpleasant anti-trans campaign by much of the media and the political elite. She's written a new book, The Transgender Issue, which you'll hear me praise some more, but let me just say this, it's absolutely incredible. You really must get a copy. And we talk about a lot. We talk about uh, uh, how trans liberation will liberate all of us, uh, the parallels and differences between the anti-trans campaigns and the anti-gay campaigns of the 1980s in particular onwards, the plight of young trans people, for example, um, the the nature of the anti-trans campaign, what's really driving it, I suppose. Uh, we talk about a lot of capitalism and trans liberation. I mean, honestly, it's action-packed. Uh, so please do listen and enjoy. As ever, do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. You're the one who keep the team, the show on the road. Uh, and we've got loads of great, particularly documentaries coming out. Labour conference, Tory conference, who owns wealth, power in Britain, loads of stuff. Um, and also you can give off a one-off donation if you like. In the, uh, in, You can click on the... In, in the link in the in the description uh, and just subscribe and also if you want to give us a review you know a few stars we will love you forever and ever with that said please listen to sean and enjoy why hello it is a very very big honor to have the one the only the sensational sean Faye, who is the author of a book all of you must don't order it now actually because you kind of need to either watch or listen to the interview depending on the medium but you do need to buy the transgender issue it's one of the most important books of our time that's not hyperbole it's just an accurate summation (laughs) of a a book which i think in decades to come when they look back at the appalling period we're going through in terms of transphobia they will go this was the definitive book that really summed up the struggle against the anti-trans backlash and summed up the aspirations and struggle of the trans rights movement. Sean, it's an honour to see you. Thank you. No pressure on that. Um, history will remember this is the book. That's a really, it's a really lovely thing, but also intensely pressurised. So thanks for that. Yeah, just, <laughs> yeah. And also, yeah, I mean, don't obviously, you know, don't mess up the interview because we need to, so no further pressure. I've really put you at ease, I feel, as a subject. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was lovely. Yeah, don't 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 mess up the interview because you will pretty much wreck the cause for trans liberation in this country yeah. forever. Yeah, okay. I think it's make or break this interview. <laughs> I think it's make or break for the global trans rights movement. It isn't. Sean is, um, just quickly before I ask you questions, it is, it's really important I say this because I think a lot of people you know, might not know any trans people, they might not know much about trans rights, they see all this stuff going on in social media, and they might think about this book, will I understand it, is it for me? It's so easy to read and understand, it's so cogently and fluently written, Um, so if you feel, I don't know where to begin with all of this, this is where you start. 
And on the spirit, in the spirit of that, my first question, you say in the book, you argue that trans liberation will not just liberate trans people, but all of us. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I wanted to frame, yeah, and I say that right, that's the opening line of the book, is the liberation of trans people would benefit everyone in our society. And I really wanted to open with that quite bold statement. Um, One, because it's true, and so I'll explain why I think it's true. It's because in liberation politics, uh, if we look at people like any kind of society and we look at like minorities or people who are, you know, categories of people who are pushed to the margins, and that's not just trans people, obviously, if you look at the things that would remedy their marginalization, they tend to be systemic big things that would remedy the marginalization of um, lots of other groups. Um, so I discuss things like housing, healthcare, uh, bodily autonomy, um, freedom from like state interference and violence in some cases. And that's not just something that would help um, trans people, that, that would help so many vulnerable groups. And then when you look at society as a whole, and this is a common idea in many liberation movements, um, the suffragettes talked about it, um, like the liberation of women would basically benefit everyone. Um, plenty of like black feminist collectives have always said the liberation of black women in particular would like liberate everyone. It's because if you look at this kind of model where you start to uh, reshift the distribution of power in society and you start to elevate um, the, the groups that are forced to the margins or sometimes at the bottom in the most vulnerable cases, you actually lift everyone up. It's kind of the opposite of the glass ceiling idea where like the people at the top just smash th- through. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty common idea in a lot of liberation movements and it's in a lot of manifestos of different groups, um, Gay Liberation Front, um, yeah, as I say, very bl- many black feminist socialist collectives and this right back to the suffragettes and probably before. Um, and then the reason also strategically, I put that right at the beginning of the book as the, as the opening sentence is because I think people are very used to hearing how trans people are a nuisance for everyone else and about how accommodating trans people, even in the smallest ways, is going to be a huge problem for them and is a complete nuisance to everyone and is um, basically, uh, yeah, that we are a small minority of people who are making unreasonable demands for the rest of everyone else and basically um, subversive and difficult. And actually, I wanted to really completely reverse that message. So I opened the book with almost the antithesis of what people are perhaps used to hearing from particularly the media, um, which is actually, no, uh, helping trans people would help you. One of the, uh, you've got this big chapter, which looks in great detail at the, the, the experiences of of trans, of young trans people. And it's really fascinating because you meet these parents who are extremely supportive and affirmative. And that makes a big difference because those who are who are uh, either heterosexual or uh, cis, which for those who don't know what that means, it means you're uh, you are comfortable, generally speaking, with the gender identity you assigned at birth. Um, for those who aren't, don't have affirmative parents, that can be very, very damaging for the rest of, your, of their lives. As anyone who's LGBTQ knows, with their friends, people have had terrible experiences, which then leads to terrible consequences for the rest of their lives often. But I'm interested in just talking about that in terms of, because a lot of these parents, they didn't know anything about trans people. They didn't know about anything about trans rights. And then their children are, are trans and they have to go on this journey without necessarily often this, you know, this roadmap, this level of support, the lack of kind of cultural recognition of trans people that now gay people have. So it's much easier and accessible for parents of, gay children who are cisgender. Mm -hmm. So I'm just interested in trying to talk a bit about the journey that those parents 
have to go on and what that tells us about the society in which we live and the support or lack thereof that exists for young trans people. Right, yeah. So I think the thing is, is that I, you know, this book, I wrote about it, like I I wrote this book with the intention that it could be read by anyone who doesn't really know anything about trans people, trans lives, and is maybe a bit confused um, by the debate. They see maybe like a heated debate going on in, in social media and on in the mainstream media. And I think it is really hard for people to relate, particularly with young trans children, is that um, because it's such a rare experience, that acute gender dysphoria that can manifest in childhood um, in society as a whole, let's say it's about, I think, approximately 0.44% of children, perhaps, um, is the closest estimate we have. And we don't have, you know, the most robust data, but it's a good estimate. It's easy. I can see why it would be very easy to think, but this is such, this is so bizarre because children can, you know, people do say things like children say all sorts. Children think my kid wanted to be a train, (laughs) you know, and I can sort of understand where people aren't being facetious. They think that um, because they don't have a reference point for this very unique, unusual experience, although it is one that has um, existed throughout human history. And I think what I wanted to kind of display by, um, yeah, speaking to the families of trans children is that I think there can be this very, um, this fantasy that, sorry, I can hear like sirens going off outside my flat. Whoop, whoop, it's the sound of the police. <laughs> yeah. I don't know the difference between the different emergency sirens. Anyway, um, so yeah, so I think it's very easy to think, right, so if a kid's socially transitioning seven or eight it's the parents that are driving this. And I can sort of see why, because it's hard to believe that this child would have this profound sense that they are another gender and that it's not just a fleeting thing. So it's, oh no, it must be the parents pushing it. And I know that's what a lot of people think. And I can sort of see why they think it, um, especially if they've never met families like this. So the reason I I featured, yeah, in particular, I make a case study of one family with a very young trans daughter who had transitioned. Um, By the time I'd interviewed her, she was in late primary school, but she had been socially transitioned since she was about four. Um, And yeah, like these, these parents did not know anything about trans people either. And what's interesting about it is that this child as so many trans children who are able to articulate at a young age and not all do some some realize it later you know this is not something that's fleeting like, oh I want to be a train this is everyday confusion distress like really not understanding like you know almost feeling like why aren't adults getting this going into nursery getting half the class to refer to you by the pronouns of a different gender from the one you've been assigned at birth and then, you know, being really confused and distressed when people are correcting you and saying, no, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And these parents were very open and really opened up to me. And I'm really grateful to them because what they kind of expressed was that, like, obviously they thought, well, there's something we haven't taught her. Um, you know, that we're missing something here. This is a boy who wants feminine things, which, again, is what a lot of people think. It's like a little boy puts on a dress and then, like, you know, they, they, they confuse that with being a girl. And these parents really, really thought that, too because they didn't know anything about trans kids. Also, like I think on some level, you know, they knew it was not gonna be an easy journey. And I think they'd never heard of trans children. And so what I really wanted to sort of chart is, you know, often the the supportive parents don't immediately leap to that. It comes from really trying everything else um, until they start to like maybe think, well, I, I can't have this distressed child anymore. So I'm going to have to look into this further. And they go on, if you like, it's a bit of a cliche in trans stuff, a journey, but for want of a better word, a journey and kind of, um, yeah, start to come to a place of acceptance themselves. 
uh, and I and I speak in depth in the book to a family that went through that. Um, and I speak to a young trans man as well, who's 18, um, when I speak to him in the book, but, you know, his mother had done the same when he'd come out about 12 or 13. You know, these parents often are like, they come from a position of confusion, um, which so many parents of LG, even accepting parents of LGBTQ plus people, I think people our age, like a lot of people's parents who are who are accepting now, it's, you know, like you see, we probably have friends who like go, their mums go with them to pride, but like it probably didn't start off that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so rather than it being uh, something that parents are driving, often LGBTQ kids who have managed to get advocacy from their parents, obviously it's luck about who their parents are, what resources are available to them. But also, yeah, it's, it's usually that the fact that the child has had to really, really advocate for themselves, sometimes from a very young age, and that can be intensely distressing. I thought on that, it was a really interesting piece written by someone called Norma Mulready, who's the sister of Molly Mulready. He's a brilliant yeah. campaigner for trans rights, but her child is trans. And Nora Mulready was someone who self-identified as gender critical, which is, I suppose, mm. a respectable intellectual veneer for anti-trans uh, <laughs> yeah. talking points, and wrote about how that dogma that she had collided with the reality. And, you know, she fought it. She was like, I don't want to... And then eventually just all her talking points, all her dogma, her, you know, her, her anti-trans talking points dissolved in the face of reality. And I'm interested in asking about that because... Some of the anti-trans talking points you get now are basically, as you just alluded to, trans kids are non-conform, gender non-conforming people who have essentially been coerced into mm. believing that they're the wrong gender. When actually, you know, let boys be whatever they want to be, just because boys like dolls or girls like football, mm. and that's how they present it. So I'm just interested in that whole. You know, that's why now they're saying it's homophobic to support trans rights. <laughs> Yeah, which I find are, are very annoying and dissonant from, from my, even from, I mean, much of my personal experience isn't in this book. It's not a memoir. I use some anecdotal things from my own youth, but not not huge amounts. Um, but obviously, yeah, in my case, I mean, I, I very much tried to be a gender non-conforming uh, queer man um, in my, yeah, in my early 20s and late teens. Um, and so, yeah, like actually every, I mean, yeah, my own personal experience, everyone would have preferred um, I think to have had like a flamboyant gay <laughs> friend, son, um, sibling, whatever, you know, it would, it would have been a lot easier in many ways. And, and I, I think there are obviously there, there's a spectrum, right? I'm not going to say that every trans child is completely certain from the beginning. They're not, there will be some people in the middle who, um, perhaps are confused about where they might sit on the gender spectrum, or they don't know if they're a gender non-conforming woman, or perhaps they're non-binary. And, you know, they they have to go on a kind of um, soul searching for that. And I think, you know, these labels often are quite contingent. I think there are people who, the, the language we use now to sometimes describe identity is a bit different to what people a generation older than me would use to describe um, their, their identity. So you might get some people, I would say, who might use the term non-binary now, but would have just called themselves a butch, um, maybe like 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's a fluidity there, but <laughs> the reality is, is that, yeah, I think, I think it's really crucial to say that no one, um, being trans, like all the statistics, it's really great how things have improved, um, for cis LGB kids. I mean, it's not improved in schools as much as people perhaps think no. it has. Um, but Stonewall statistics, for example, for the, over the last like 10 years, since 2007, do show there's been a reduction in stuff like homophobic taunting, homophobic language used in schools. 
all the evidence points to the fact that's not the case for transphobia and for trans kids. Um, so it, like, if you just think about it for a second, there's no logical advantage or um, incentive for anyone to be pushing for someone to be a trans kid over a cis gay kid, gender, not, you know, gender conforming. I think sometimes people, some, you know, some trans people will express the way that they talk about their gender in very cliched, stereotypical ways, because that's the language that makes sense to them. And people can seize on that and be like, see, you're not, you don't really identify as like female, you just like femininity. Um, but I just think it's like, I don't know, I just think those gotchas um, are a bit, are a bit kind of disingenuous and uh, tend to fly in the face of the evidence that like, you know, without doing oppression Olympics, the evidence shows it's still significantly harder um, to be a trans person in Britain than it is to be a cis LGB person. I'm by no means saying that it's easy to be a cis LGB person. I mean, linked to that, what would you say the parallels and differences are between, I suppose, the anti-trans moral panic of today and the previous moral panics about cisgender LGB people in the 80s onwards, not just the 80s onwards, but that was like the heyday, really. It's an interesting question. So I think there are obvious parallels, particularly in the media treatment. Um, so, you know, it's very easy to look at, you know, people have done this loads on Twitter. I do it a little bit in the book. Um, dig up, you can dig up some headlines um, from the 80s and 90s of the same newspapers, you know, the Times, the Sun, the Mail. And uh, particularly about gay men, but not just about gay men. There, you know, there's one that I refer to. It just sounds so ludicrous to modern ears, and it's a it's a story, yeah, news story. And I can't remember. It's one of the tabloids in the in the 90s, and it's this um, Haringey Council, and this young girl was being given lessons in lesbianism by a gay teacher. You know, and that was you know, it just sounds completely ludicrous. But actually, this idea of like recruiting the young, contagion, the idea that the group is growing and that, yeah, they're, they're recruiting more members and they represent an existential threat to uh, life, to public health. You know, like obviously the AIDS crisis was a particular way that that was fueled in anti-gay panic. Um, and for trans people, it's more about the idea of irreversible medical transition than, say, something like um, HIV. Um, but... I do think, yeah, there are parallels about this idea of contagion and recruitment of the young and um, and deviance too. I mean, like people say, you know, I think a lot of gender critical feminists say, yeah, but there's a difference because we're not, there's no moral repugnance about um, trans people. We just don't believe that they're, the, you know, that they can't identify as the opposite sex. But actually, I only have to look at my Twitter mentions to know that there is a deep repugnance mm. in the much the same way as like, a true homophobe has a complete revulsion at two gay men kissing. It's just like a kind of, you know, like a kind of lizard-like response. Like, ugh. Um, they have that about trans people. They have that about like the way we dress, the way we look. You know, it it is viscerally a disgust, and they just find us gross. I mean, like that is where that is where a lot of this does come from. And I'm not saying all people do um, who identify as gender critical. I think some do have more sort of sophisticated analyses. But like, I think I think there is a moral disgust there. Um, I think some people just don't like the idea of men in dresses or whatever. Um, and they see us as creepy and, you know, fetishistic and all that stuff. And that and that's really similar to homophobia. It's just the idea that we're perverts. So there, so there is an overlap. Where I would say that there's um, a little bit of a difference 
is because I think there's a risk that we could say, oh, well, trans people are just like gay people, but on a 20 year time lag and in 20 years. And I, I'm optimistic. I hope that in 20 years time, things will be significantly different. And I think social attitudes are improving. But I sometimes think that the trans panic is a continue is a is a kind of stuff that didn't get resolved as gay people assimilate into society, because quite a lot of what the anxiety around gay people has always been is that gay people are gender non-conforming. They don't do gender correctly. If you sleep with the wrong person, if you're a man who sleeps with men or a woman who sleeps with women or someone who sleeps with both, you um, you're not doing gender correctly. Like mm -hmm. we're supposed, our gender is supposed to be heterosexual versions mm -hmm. of our gender. And I think what happened is that like mainstream gay acceptance was often relying on like, you know, it's that like mask for mask, uh, gay thing it's like you know we're, we're the same as you we want the same things we just want to get married we want to do all the same things and trans people are a deeper anxiety because we're saying you know some trans people do say that we want all the same things but we're we're kind of a, a new iteration of the same anxiety about like gender variance in society and because we go like if you like a little bit further um in terms of how we reject the gender roles that are assigned to us i i think yeah, I think there's a deeper anxiety about trans people. Also, I think we're less easily assimilated because so many things in society and public space are gendered. You know, like we obviously toilets are the obvious example, but so many things about how we organize ourselves socially are done on binary gender lines. And trans people do represent a real challenge to that. So I think sometimes the anxiety does go a bit deeper with trans people. The other difficulty that we have that gay people didn't is there's less of us. <laughs> so uh, um, gay men kind of managed to <laughs> get on TV, sort of become normalized in, you know, Graham Norton, et cetera, Lily Savage, all the people that I loved when I was younger. Um, you know, I think I think that kind of cultural change came mm -hmm. a little bit quicker because there were more gay people around to maybe create that mm -hmm. visibility in society. And trans people do not have that advantage because we're so small. I suppose another a, a difference, which is well, just not true, is is that's often argued is well, the difference is actually homophobia this was something which was associated exclusively with the british right but that wasn't true i mean you had trotskyists for a start who would argue mm, yeah it was a petty bourgeois deviation which would disappear with capitalism homosexuality that is and yes. also, <laughs> equally um i mean i'm deeply petty bourgeois but also um here's an article which argued uh, that the case for gay rights was being undermined by militant homosexuals because they made unreasonable demands of the rest of society, such as asking newspapers not to call them pofters. I'm not quoting from the Sun or the Mail. I'm quoting from the Observer in 1990. <laughs> so actually, actually, I mean, it's just interesting how history's revised, isn't it? You know, well, in it 19... is, well, well, there's this like liberal, what I call a liberal amnesia, right? Like we saw it with like It's a Sin earlier this year with like um, with our mutual friend Ollie Alexander, um, and. What fascinated me about the reaction to that, among, I don't know if you felt the same, but amongst a lot of straight people, and I felt like, you know, yeah, a lot, a lot of straight people perhaps on my timeline. Um, yeah, it's this liberal amnesia, like people sort of like liking to, like, you know, being, oh, wasn't it awful? It's like, you were alive then. Like, what was your attitude to gay people at the time? Were you the person that was like, if you thought a gay person had drunk from the same mug as you, were you like throwing the mug away and there will be those people and you know it's good that they've moved on I'm all for like not not if people have genuinely evolved in their views I'm not one to kind of like shame them about an evolution in views um because that's that's not my thing I wouldn't have written a book if I wasn't trying to convince people out of transphobia but um but yeah there is a liberal amnesia about about gay stuff and I, and I do think like you know if you read 
the some of the columnists in the Times, and they say, oh, well, gay people just wanted to get married, and they just wanted, you know, that it didn't interfere with anyone else. And it's like, no, if you look at um, the campaign to equalize the age of consent um, for men who have sex with men, you know, the language being used at the time was like, well, why are they so vested in the idea of like, why are these old men so vested in the idea of it making it legal to have sex with 16 year old boys? It's a, it's a pedophile's charter. Why are these, why are they, why are these adults campaigning for it? You know, all that innuendo in much the same way as like, if, um, if I talk about trans young people, uh, anyone who advocates for like trans young people, so why are you so keen on like transitioning these kids? Why are you so keen on arresting their puberty? And it's all this like sort of like innuendo about predation and and yeah, and it's and I think like the observer thing that you just quoted, it just shows it wasn't it wasn't just the right wing, and um, and maybe a lot of the people that write for places like the Observer and the Guardian, etc., like now like to think that those that those publications were always. Um, you know, their temperature was always right on these issues. They they took the temperature correctly. No, they clearly didn't. I mean, you also get this kind of, oh, you're going to win back the Red Wall with this sort of chat as though Trump <laughs> exists in the Red Wall and all Red Wall people are bigots. But as example, in 1987, Neil Kinnock's press secretary, Patricia Hewitt, wrote, the loony le Labour left is now taking its toll. The gay and lesbians issue is costing us dear amongst the pensioners. But now those those same people saying that about trans people now, they would go, oh, well, obviously that was horrible. They, you know, we could never, <laughs> you know, because obviously gay rights are sacred, but they, they wouldn't apply the same logic today that you stand and fight for the rights of a minority, even if you're, even, even, yeah. even if lots of people are resistant to that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why, again, in the book I write about, um, there's a chapter called class struggle right because precisely to address that is that is that kind of left-wing strain of or yeah like like you say you're not going to win the red wall back and um, is this idea that like trans people are somehow materially different from them from it's like a liberal bourgeois these people like it's an ideology that basically is like set up by big pharma it wants to trap all these people into getting all this cosmetic surgery to realize their inner selves it's individualist it's libertarian and it's like one <laughs> Most trans people are begging for basic healthcare on GoFundMe, even in Britain and certainly in the US. Like, if it's this huge big pharma lobby that's trying to make us lifelong paying thousands of pounds, where are we getting this thousands of pounds from? Because people are literally begging um, for basic healthcare. Um, two, all of the kind of like, you know, hormones and stuff that trans people take up are made for cis people. Like we're not the market for it. Like I take the same hormones that if I open the label of my hormones, it's all about women who are going through menopause. Like no one's thinking about me when they when they when they manufacture those hormones. It's just it's just a complete fantasy. But I think all of that stuff, it ties into this like, yeah, idea that trans stuff is like this kind of bourgeois, liberal, um, individualist, anti-leftist, not really um yeah not a socialist concern and i was really keen the book is very socialist for this reason um and, and makes a really socialist argument the book is very socialist that sounds very vapid like it it, it makes a, a specifically socialist argument because um yeah because trans people like struggle so much to get employment like um you know all this again all the statistics show like one in three trans like one in three employers in the UK wouldn't knowingly hire a trans person. Like half of trans people who are employed have to hide the fact they're trans at work. Trans people as workers, if you want to talk like socialism, are like often in very precarious, poor working conditions, the vast majority. Um, and, and that's often not seen, right? Like people see people like me in the media, a middle class 
privileged trans person and that's the way that these things often go is that the people that have the time to be writing books and stuff like that are the privileged ones which is why I wanted to kind of amplify the voices of people mm -hmm. who whose experience isn't like mine and uh and yeah so like most trans people are workers so this idea that like trans people don't form part of the working class they absolutely do trans people are always overrepresented in leftist organizing if you go to any demo like there's always trans people there <laughs> like yeah. um trans people have always been like part of the left even when the left hasn't treated them very well and that's because trans people frankly need the left um because of the precarity with which many of them lead their lives both in housing like many of them lead their lives in housing healthcare, and and the workplace i mean on that you know the class politics of trans rights i think is is really interesting because again as you say it's often misportrayed as this identitarian issue and all the rest of it when actually and, and again obviously in the same way that uh, a cis woman who is a cleaner and a cis woman who is the ceo of a bank they have different lived experiences and they have but they also suffer for example sexual harassment in the streets mm. male violence in different ways so just tell me about that the class politics of of trans rights and the kind of economic and social demands that are absolutely critical in order to ensure that trans people actually achieve genuine liberation rather as well as the issues of street level you know abuse yeah. oppression that they suffer in in tandem right well the thing is like the first thing to say is that like um probably just a very basic point right is that uh the degree to which, like, as you, like the comparison with cis women, the degree to which you experience transphobia is really bound up with your class position, right? Like, I, you know, I know firsthand as someone that, like, you know, when I first started transitioning, I was actually on job seekers allowance. And now, obviously, um, you know, I have like a, a kind of very full career and stuff like that and have a bit more means. And a it's Sunday like, Times best selling book. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Is there are so many forms of transphobia that like, you can simply pay to escape. Like I, you know, like if I had been able in the early days where I perhaps didn't blend in as well and I was getting street harassment to have like, you know, even if you can get a cab home, <laughs> you can afford that. That makes your life and your mental health and everything else very, very different. And then we get into things like, do you have secure housing? Um, do you have a job? Is your job respectful of your identity? Is it a job that, you know, if you're if you're at a job that's a Stonewall diversity champion, they've done the training, they've provided the gender neutral toilet, you know, that's very different to working on a zero hours contract where like everyone makes fun of you. You could basically like, you're worried all the time that like, they might just think, oh, I'm not going to give you any more work because you're a freak or, you know, all that stuff. And I've met trans people that that's their reality. That's a very, very different position. Right. And also, um, as I said about healthcare, I referred to people begging a minute ago is that, you know, there's the, uh, you know, and again, I have a chapter on healthcare in the book is, um, yeah, we have the NHS and trans people can access certain types of care not all the not all the care really they would need in many cases on the nhs but the waiting lists are now so abysmal the entire system is broken it's been exacerbated by covid you're waiting perhaps three four years on the nhs for a first appointment you're certainly not going to get like any hormones to be starting your transition at a first appointment and so like you know again if you can go private with healthcare and start you know your transition earlier you, you know, if you're a trans woman, you can start getting laser hair removal. I mean, these things sound a bit like, but, you know, there's a huge difference between, yeah, perhaps if you can blend in a bit more of society. And ironically, you're more likely to get a job <laughs> if you blend in. Like, there's this kind of catch-22 where, like, the more that you kind of like meet society's agreeable standards of gender conformity, which you can only sometimes access through healthcare, the more you're likely to walk into a job interview and they're not going to, like 
see you as a freak and the more likely they are to hire you. So there's this, so there's this kind of huge bind for like working class trans people. And I would say the majority of trans people are working class, just as the majority of people are working class. Like obviously there will be the odd example that like people will always point to. I mean, people point to me, right? Like I, I'm always very open about the fact I got a scholarship to a public school. Then I went to Oxford, then I became a lawyer. And obviously people always point that out. I'm like, it's true. Like, you know, I've been very lucky. I'm not representative. And I say that I'm at pains to say that in the book. Um, and, but the reality is actually I'm the rarity. Um, and the trouble is, is it's much like pointing to like, a very well off, you know, it's like when people would say, like, point to, I don't know, rich black people in the media and imply that just because there are some black people living in great style and comfort, yeah. <laughs> you know, celebrities, that doesn't mean racism and racialized poverty doesn't exist. I mean, it's just nonsense. So yeah, class, class really distinctly shapes your experience of being trans. And then obviously, yeah, like, uh, trans, trans rights, a big part of it is workers, workers' rights. I think the trouble is with the Gender Recognition Act reform in recent years, which was obviously a touted reform, now shelved by Boris Johnson, of course, um, about reforming the gender recognition processes because of the huge backlash to that. It became this huge, big fight in the media. And I feel like it's become almost like a drain on energy because I think what would actually help most trans people more is like proper workers' rights, proper protections. Obviously, they have protection under the Equality Act, you can't technically legally fire someone for being trans in the UK, unlike some states in America. But of course, we know like workers' rights are very poor. You, we know that like people can circumvent the law. We also know that trans people, you know, legal aid has been cut through austerity. Most trans people don't have any money. And if they do, they're certainly not going to be able to be able to spend it on solicitors to take things to tribunal. We're not all gender critical feminists who can raise hundreds of thousands of pounds to take our kind of like lux litigation to the Supreme Court. You know, like in reality is that even if you your legal rights have been violated as a trans person, your recourse is probably non-existent in practical effect. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your book, in terms of your your arguments in favour of trans liberation are very much bound up with a very profound critique of capitalism, and uh, you know, you, you you very much link together the struggle for trans liberation with with I suppose a socialist struggle. And if I was going to be neoliberal devil's advocate, <laughs> I would say, which is obviously my de facto starting point anyway. Um, a lot of radical gay activists said in the 1980s that the struggle for gay liberation couldn't happen until capitalism was superseded. And obviously then what happened is 
lots of legal uh, rights were won. Uh, the anti-gay laws were removed. Um, and social acceptance, which has still got a long way to go, but is obviously much better than it was, I mean, hugely better than it was in the 1980s. Um, and in fact, now you get pinkwashing. You get companies which will wrap themselves in the pride flag um, for commercial reasons because they know younger audiences think LGBTQ rights is a good thing to be associated with and they might buy products off the back of it. So isn't that <laughs> potentially the case just again with trans rights, that actually trans rights, it might not be ideal, but a trans rights could be won under capitalism. Yeah, well, it depends on rights for who, right? So even if we use your example about gay people, let's say gay, cisgender gay men, right? So well, which cisgender gay men? Because exactly. like, yeah, if you're like, yeah, fine. If you went to like a, you know, if you went to a Russell Group University and then you moved to London and you're a white middle-class gay man and then you, Hi. <laughs> Sorry. And then you like, you know, you find your people and like, yeah, you can go to Pride and like, you know, uh, go to GAY late when you're like, you know, in your early 20s, all that stuff. Like, yeah, that that's a degree of um, acceptance that certainly like gay men did not have 30 years ago. But like, let's have a look at like, you know, in London, it's just in London, like the housing crisis, how many like, you know, the, the issues in the, in the, in the gay community amongst like still with HIV, still with um, the fact that like uh, gay men's sexual health isn't treated as like a, a proper public health issue, um, issues with drugs and alcohol on the scene. Um, and yeah, with the housing crisis, I mean, like there are people, you know, sofa surfing, doing casual sex work, even in London, even among that demographic, right? Like there, there are still plenty of like, um, gay people and then if we add in like if we say which gay people what about the gay men who are in immigration removal centers across britain who are still like you know mm -hmm. who are basically our government locks up when they have come to britain seeking asylum um you know and yeah we're marching with pride and then like um i don't know the airlines that deport them back to like assist our government to deport them back to places that face extreme violence potentially you know we're marching alongside those those companies or those mm -hmm. arms dealers or those you know so the reality is is it's only been partial under capitalism it really depends again on your class position um so yeah like obviously like i mean i'm doing all right you know what i mean under capitalism i can't i can't i can't pretend that i'm materially oppressed in the way that most people are um in the trans community but that what the argument i'm making is that yeah like it will only ever be partial and the reality is, is that like yeah it's certainly not where cisgender lgb people are but but yeah, under socialism, like, I still don't think gay liberation has been achieved. I agree with the liberation socialists of like, you know, the, of the early gay liberation front. Um, and, I, and I still, I st yeah, I still agree with them. And I think with trans rights, I think it's that if I'm making a sort of like ground zero argument, like let's build up, let's build up um, considering that there wasn't necessarily a political book like this in Britain about trans liberation, then obviously I'm going to be like, well, we have, you know, if we were thinking in a utopian um, progressive way, we'd be starting to think, well, we have to, you know, we have to start making an argument that's going to include everyone. Um, but I, I don't, I don't know how much in reality, like there are obviously the, the temptation to assimilate into capitalism and particularly when you're perhaps at the, you know, in the class position where, you might be welcomed in a bit more is very very tempting for you know people from all minority groups um but i don't think we should take that as a sign that just because we can see those people maybe thriving under capitalism mm -hmm. that um that socialism can be just sort of put in the bin <laughs> and just to avoid some very tedious social media interactions as a white middle class 
Oxford <laughs> graduate. I was asking a devil's advocate question, everyone. So just don't even try it. Um, we we have spoken before on this show about, I suppose, what could be called the British strain of transphobia. Mm. Uh, it's not the case. Obviously, that transphobia is specific to this country. Obviously, it's everywhere. Um, but obviously, you know, there are some quite specific characteristics in this country in the way it's evolved and the sort of institutions it's really colonised. So I'm just interested in that in terms of, I do think the radicalization of many of those elements has gone up a notch, to be honest, and it keeps going up a notch. And I do think, this will wind them up if they're watching and listening, but I do think there are some parallels actually with anti-vaxxer um, conspiracism. In It's the same kind of, you know, scientific conspiracy, go, coming for our children, often quite vulnerable people without being overly sympathetic who are, who go down online rabbit holes I mean, what is your understanding of, I suppose, the modern, what they call themselves the gender critical movement, where it's come from, the sorts of people it's attracting. You've got the LGB Alliance, which is basically an AstroTurf campaign, but you know, but they they are now because now I get, you know, bombarded with people who are generally straight calling me homophobe homophobic. Yeah. They obviously relish doing that. Like, we get to call the gays homophobic. Oh, I know. I get it. I get it all the time. And it's like, do you know that like literally I don't think I like see or speak to anyone who isn't gay. <laughs> <laughs> like from one end of the week to the next. Like I like, oh yeah, I'm homophobic against gay men because I'm trying to recruit gay boys to be girl. It's like this is ludicrous. Like, do you know how many gay men? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um so yeah, the gender critical movement. Um, well, I my 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 personal theory on this is um, yeah that that term which has risen in uh, in recent years is their kind of self designation because a lot of them didn't like the term turf. It's interesting that like I think it's it that term gender critical is very useful because it's a kind of cover for a real motley crew of a lot of people that a lot of disparate types of people that don't have a lot in common apart from hate trans people and it doesn't like you know because turf used to be like when it was used as a specific strain of feminism it originally meant that but like you know you see like a lot of like people in their bios on twitter say gc man you know and they're not they're not even gay men they're straight men Mm -hmm. so it's not even like a it's not always just like a feminist movement now it's just a cover for like basically i don't i don't believe trans people about anything they say about themselves and i also don't really want them to have any rights um, but it, yeah, it's, it's an odd motley crew. So obviously you get the kind of respectable people who write in the broadsheets who would be very angry with you comparing them to anti-vaxxers because they think their position is very reasonable and thought out. Um, someone like, I'm going to, for example, someone like JK Rowling, I believe, thinks that, her, well, I mean, she, her position, you know, she's not a stupid woman, is that hers is her, it's come from a specific reflection on what she believes trans people are trying to argue for, which I would disagree with, but it's her belief on that. And I think she's thought about, I think she's probably given it far too much for what I would think for a woman of her means. I literally, you'd never hear from me again. But <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, I think, um, so there's a difference between her, right? But then like, what, what I do see is there's this underbelly, uh, and I'm sure you see it too, of on social media, in forums, let's say some parenting forums in the UK, Twitter, mm-hmm. stuff like that, is people who are not using their own names, the people who really say the vicious stuff to me, who still have gender critical in their bios, you know, who 
this is that is it's conspiratorial some of the stuff is or well like you know there's there's <laughs> whenever i do anything on your show there's all i always see stuff in my mentions about how we're sleeping together that i'm seducing you into <laughs> which by the way into, we into absolutely being be absolutely clear we've had a long running and absolutely very intense and passionate sexual relationship <laughs> so we can put that one to bed in, in a literal sense i know it's quite it's quite <laughs> It's quite funny that, like, I think it's very funny that there's a conspiracy theory that I'm seducing gay men into trans rights, considering that when I was living as one, I wasn't so good at seducing gay men. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like, but you know, that that I gave that as like a fun example for the entertainment value of the show. But um, you know, there are there is these delusional conspiracy theories I see all the time in my mentions, and it is quite paranoid. Um, and there is an underbelly of that. Um, and I I do think in that that strain of it is. And then you see also some women, and I and I said this in an interview for the New Statesman recently, you know, who are like a lot of women are drawn to feminism because they have been badly traumatized by men, by cis men. And my personal kind of view on that is like, obviously, I can completely empathize with that as as like so many trans women I know have too. Um, and I actually don't know that much difference in the experiences of, of trans women I know and cis women I know in terms of domestic violence, sexual assault, etc. Like, even in my personal acquaintance, I would say the, the experiences are markedly similar. Um, but like, but yeah, so, so, they, so they have a very real reason to be drawn to feminism. But I think what can happen is that because of like, and again, this is where I tie it to the socialist argument, is we've been living, you know, we lived under 10 years of austerity. Is it like half of all refuge, we don't talk about women's refuges, which is a big site of this kind of debate, if you like. Half of all refuge requests now are like turned down pretty mm -hmm. much because there aren't enough spaces the, the you know the Tories have been slashing mm -hmm. women's services crisis services for decades and I think like it's a misdirected anger because there's this scarcity mentality I think there's a real pessimism feminism obviously did achieve a lot but like if you look at the feminists of the 70s who built refuges I think a lot of the kind of the more radical ones I think they built refuges yes to protect women from men's violence and to allow them space to heal and recover from the trauma of patriarchy but there was no, that was never supposed to be the end goal. The end goal was supposed to bring an end to patriarchy and perhaps, you know, to think about a society in which men and boys are not raised to abuse women. And unfortunately, we haven't really, there's been no diminishment of male violence, of domestic mm -hmm. violence, of the violence that women and girls have to endure in their kind of most personal, intimate lives. Um, and so that I can understand a pessimism where it's like, well, it's unchangeable. Men are violent. Women are the people who are violated. Men oppress. Mm -hmm. Women are the oppressed. Male, female. This very binary view, and uh, and a sense that yeah, it's fixed really almost, and that like it's fixed in our biology is what it ultimately becomes like male, female, sex matters because a lot of gender critical feminists will say things like sex matters. And it's like yes, I'm aware that our biology matters. I'm aware that a woman's a cisgender woman's reproductive capacity. As a source of oppression I'll never be able to understand and never experience and and it obviously is one like a lot of the oppression of women is tied to their capacity to reproduce I, I I've always accepted that um but like yeah so I think so when they say sex matters I think what they often mean is sex is a determinant of like how we should order society and a predictor of your behavior and it's like well no gender is a predictor of your behavior how perhaps how people are raised how they're socialized etc is a predictor of their behavior but like it quite quickly slips into like biological essentialism. And so then you be it becomes about defending womanhood, defending the term female, defending the barriers of that category. 
And then it's suddenly it's like, well, trans women become the ultimate obsession and the ultimate enemy because we're seen as interlopers who are trying to enter that category. And it is true that I do see some, you know, some women who who tweet far more about trans women than like, you know, <laughs> other huge issues. Like, you know, the incel who killed those women, who killed people in Plymouth, you know, like they'll still be tweeting about trans women. And it's like, mm -hmm. a, you know, are we really the, <laughs> the problem? Um, but you know, I, I have, I have a degree of empathy for that, but so I think there are some very hurt people, particularly cisgender women in the gender critical movement. I think there are some that come from a very old tradition of radical feminism, but probably similarly, um, their feminism comes from that. But I do think there are a lot of misogynist men who like abusing trans women for our appearance online. Some of the most sexually degrading comments I've ever had are from gender critical men. And then I also think that there are a lot of, um, cantankerous um slightly bitter um people in the lgbt community who perhaps maybe it's because i, I mean i wouldn't want to predict it but they you know i think the people well the lgb alliances <laughs> for the lgb alliance it's full of a lot of straight people um mm -hmm. but i do think like yeah there are there are a lot of gay people who perhaps you know again have struggled in their lives and then they sort of see this idea that everything's about trans now stonewall only talks about trans what about us and again, it's that scarcity mentality, I would say, giving them the, the benefit of the doubt. The other thing I would say about the LGB alliance is, yeah, one, it's entirely run by straight people. But as I discuss in the book, <laughs> the vast majority of trans people are bisexual anyway. <laughs> and technically, according to them, I'm a gay man. So like, why don't trans people run the LGB alliance when they're like, we should have, <laughs> we'll, we'll argue, I'll be the, I'll be the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> make sure they the ceo yeah. of the lgb alliance you cowards come yeah. on make yeah. it <laughs> yeah well, so, right. well, well okay we only represent lesbian gay and bisexual people well good because most trans people are bi so we all get to join <laughs> although a lot of them aren't that keen on bisexual people i know they people. aren't of course um is there a kind of darkest, it's darkest before dawn interpretation of a lot of anti-trans backlash in that a lot of backlashes against the struggle of women and minorities happens when they're achieving greater visibility and greater justice. So you saw with the civil rights movement in the United States, um, you saw white lash, which was very intense and had some, and continues to have very ugly manifestations anti-gay attitudes in the 1980s whilst gay people were achieving greater visibility and the movement was growing feminism the whole kind of feminazis aggressive women blah, blah, blah. Mm. again you know the anti-woman backlash which accompanied the successes of feminism is there something in that is some of this actually not that it's much comfort for trans people on the receiving end but is there something in that that actually some of this is it comes from a place of a side that knows they're going to lose and not just lose slightly, but actually without being hubristic, lose comprehensively in the end. Although I'm not saying women and minorities have won comprehensively. There's still a long way to go, but they have won certain rights and gains. So is, is there something in that? Yeah. I mean, it depends. Like I would, I would probably disagree because I, I don't tend to frame things as, uh, winning or losing. I mean, I, I, I can kind of see why, but I think it's because like, I think liberation struggles aren't linear. So like, there's no point where you can be like, we've won. So that's why I, I don't particularly use that language, but taking your point, I think, yeah, of course, like, um, Christine Burns, the trans campaigner, um, who 
was, you know, worked on the first gender recognition act in 2004 and was part of a press for change, which was the big trans organization that got us a lot of rights in terms of like protections under the Equality Act, because, of, you know, she said something I watched a documentary that Fred McConnell made, I think, um, who appeared with me on the show last time. Um, something about trans people committed the basically the ultimate crime for any minority, which was starting to become more visible. And I think that's true is that like, when you are visible, and you start to like, you know, like slightly have a sense of like, well, actually, I'm entitled to be here, which like I would, you know, this is the insane thing about like, if you know, when people say get out of our toilets or whatever, it's like, I'm I'm never going, <laughs> I really do believe I have a right to use whatever toilet I want. Like, I mean, you're just not going to persuade me out of that. And I think like, you know, as, as generation, like, if, if you look at probably trans kids who are, who are coming up now, their expectations of how society should treat them, I would hope, um, would be a lot higher than mine were when I first transitioned. And that's a good thing, right? Like, um, and yeah, for some people who are very invested in the status quo, that's very threatening. It seemed fine when we were in a time in history, um, perhaps 30 years ago, where trans people would go off quietly to their doctor, they'd be given some hormones and some surgery, and then they were expected to move away from where they'd grown up, change their name, never tell anyone and blend in and disappear back into cis society. And therefore, the gender binary was still intact. Trans people carried all the burden for the rest of their lives of being trans and society didn't, you know, had to just accommodate them through giving them, you know, by pathologizing them and allowing psychiatrists to basically do as they wished with them. And then like when, when you start to get like, yeah, trans people who are actually like, well, no, I don't have to, I don't have to not look trans. I don't have to pretend that I was assigned to this sex at birth. I, I'm going to be vocal about this. I'm going to talk about um, stuff in, in the public sphere, our rights, our, you know, I'm going to sort of say I'm trans, but I'm still a woman that's deeply threatening to people and I think I think that's what kicked off, off a lot and I think that's why the gender recognition act seemed so threatening to people was this idea suddenly people were like where did this come from the idea that suddenly trans people could legally say well I am this gender therefore I should be able to have documents in this gender and then this like thing about self-id and this is a very new idea it's like well no like what do you think trans is like say, standing up and saying actually I'm not I'm not a boy, I'm I'm a girl or I'm a woman. That I mean, that is self-ID. That's what trans people have done throughout history. I mean, like, like this isn't a new idea. It's just the fact that you're hearing about it for the first time. And that perhaps we're giving we're giving some legal credence to it. Um so so yeah, so I think so I think there is a backlash to that. And I and I do think um yeah, I think I think what I would say that I'm hopeful about in terms of um, the advances that trans people are making is that yeah the backlash is mainly especially in britain is like within it's in the there's a lot of people in the media and there's a lot of um perhaps people in certain institutions that can be scary for people like so in politics in the labor party um in you know in the broadsheets very vocal transphobia can be in those places but like culturally, I mean, like as you know, I, the fact that my book has sold so well is 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 encouragement to me. And the people that I've met, even in like two weeks of it being out, has really given me a lot of hope about like mm -hmm. actually, Twitter's not real life. Yes, there's like a very committed vanguard of anti-trans um, activism in the UK, but like actually, culturally, I do think a lot of trans people are feel like winning the argument. You know, a lot of people just don't one don't really care. Good. Um, like as long as we're not harming them and two quite a lot of people are supportive and yeah the very fact like you know without bigging up my book sales I, I, the reason it's genuinely heartwarming is because 
what it suggests to me is that like people were thirsting for because there's been such a media consensus that there is a desire to read an alternative because the media despite its obsession with freedom of speech having the debate there like there isn't there's no there's no counterpoint ever like where like why is this book like answering a need it's because there isn't anyone actually making the pro-trans case in the media they're always like let's have the debate it's like well where is the debate like because actually there's a lot of people claiming to be silenced in the media but there aren't very many trans people um and when there are trans people they were people like me like Paris Lees like Juno Dawson like freelancers not editors not people in positions of power um and so so yeah the media debate and the, the cultural debate and the inroads that trans people are making in terms of actual acceptance in our communities in um in the arts in like yeah, and so many great spheres of public life. I think a really, you know, I think there's a real disparity there, and it's good to focus on the stuff that's positive. Finally, although do you put anything in the, in in this response which you, we haven't addressed or you think is really important to talk about? In a world, what would a world in which there is genuine, total trans liberation, kind of hypothetical world? What would it look like for trans people, and what would it look like? for everybody else what would that kind of in practical terms what kind of freedoms would exist and how would just life be different for trans people and for everybody else because you know i think about this sometimes with gay people we're in a world in which coming out doesn't exist as a thing that kind of yeah thing. what what do you say what 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 does it look like but also just shoehorning anything <laughs> well this is this is spicy right because a lot of trans people disagree with me on this because i have you know I, I as i say i'm just one person trans people don't all have we're not the proponents of a single ideology <laughs> that is like you know we're trying to get we're doing policy capture of the police and schools and government <laughs> with our one gender ideology that we all share turns out um is yeah i'm you know i i don't like, you know, I'm quite open about the fact that I don't really believe, I mean, I don't really care. It's a bit like sexuality where people say they're a gay gene. I don't really believe gender identities are innate. And people might be like, but how can you think of, and I might, you know, I think a four-year-old can already have a profound sense of gender and where they want to sit in a gender spectrum that enough for it to warrant adult attention because it interferes with their life and, and distresses them for it not to be acknowledged. That doesn't mean that I think like I have a gendered soul. Um, and so for me, as someone that believes that actually gender is contextual and like the, the word trans has only existed for like a hundred years. There have been people, and um, I use a lot of historical examples, but I don't call anyone before the term was invented trans. I say they led a cross-gender life or they were gender variant. Um, and so like, I think the language is constantly evolving. And I would think in a truly liberated future, I would not even need to call myself trans. The category wouldn't exist. Like I'm here for like abolishing, like unlike actual like, gender critical people, I think part of me is like an actual gender abolitionist. I think in a truly liberated future, perhaps the categories of man and woman wouldn't exist as we, you know, Dawkins said that. And um, I quote her, Andrea Dawkins, who is beloved of many gender critical feminists who I don't think have read her. Um, you know, she said, like, perhaps, you know, the terms man and woman are only used male and female because there are as yet no others. And I kind of agree with her. I think in a truly liberated future, it's, it's the same thing. Like, would we have queer and straight? Like, straight is as much a term that we need to use now because, like, you know, in a, in a truly liberated future, perhaps that would, you know, the term straight wouldn't exist, nor would the term cis need to exist. 
um, and I, I know that's like that probably I'm probably losing people here because it sounds quite fantastical. But to me, it's like, yeah, the true true liberation isn't about clinging on. I'm not all about clinging on to binaries and categories. It's about using language as a political tool for political action. So like, I use the term woman because it politically can mean something. And it registers something to people. It makes me legible to people around me. But I would hope that I would not be replicate what a lot of anti-trans feminists do, which is like cling to the term for dear life is that I think in a truly liberated future, we'd have to think much more expansively about those categories. Um, and yeah, of course, like uh, what it is like, you know, gender itself is shaped by capitalism. Like if we're talking socialism, like the, the need for women's reproductive labor to be kind of subjugated under patriarchy is because it, you know, in this time it serves, it serves capitalism, the nuclear family, the way that we like raise our children, the way that we raise boys and men, the idea of work, what's men's work and women's work, the idea that like, you know, care work, raising children is still, you know, even for middle-class women, like middle-class women still expect to do most of the childcare. Like, you know, there are, there are many ways that like serve capitalism that um, also serve patriarchy and serve gen the gender binary and so like yeah I, I i mean i can't give you a full answer of what a liberated future would look like but i'm interested in that i'm interested in actually how do we start dismantling these things and i hope that we will begin to because uh <laughs> capitalism's in free fall and crisis and the climate crisis is is uh gonna screw us if we don't if we don't start to think radically about how we reorganize society There's the book. For those listening to the podcast, I have an extremely battered copy, which Sean suggested when I posed using a shameless thirst trap. I was just had some <laughs> questionable shorts on on a beach. Um, thirst traps for socialism. Nothing wrong with that. They were very, uh, they were very, they were very heterosexual shorts. Oh, I, I know. I'm a bit worried. People suggesting my shorts were hate crime against gay people. Anyway, uh, although I'm actually secretly heterosexual, which should be a big reveal. I'm not. I'm a massive raging homosexual. But this is. Uh, you suggest it look like I played volleyball with it anyway because it is battered. But that is a sign of a loved book. I don't like looking at pristine books because it suggests they're there for show. It is a brilliant book. It is a masterful masterpiece. It's just, it's so insightful. It answers so much. It's one of those books where you read some sentences and go, oh, that just explains something in a way that really makes sense and resonates in a way that I've never read anywhere else before, which is not, I'm afraid, the case with many books, including my own. So it is brilliant to have such an incredible book, which everybody should read. As I've said, if you don't really understand this issue, if you want to understand more, whether you know trans people or you don't know trans people um, and you just think this is something I need to come to grips with, this is the book. And it links everything together, which is great. It's intersectional. That's the that's the, that's what's so... Yeah, that's the buzz term, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. It weds together different struggles for liberation because we're not free until we all are. So it is a brilliant, 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 brilliant book. And we're so just chuffed to have you again as ever, really, to be honest. Yeah, no, thank you for having me again. Thank you for promoting it and um yeah i'm sure it will i'm sure it will help sales you do have a big but reach buy it. <laughs> that's Seriously, why i did it i didn't exactly. worry about it you. <laughs> yeah that was it she's got sean hates me actually sequence is really <laughs> fine very annoying irritating um but she went through this just for the sales no seriously do buy it and make sure everyone you know buys it whatsapp people bully them harangue them threaten them physically don't do that actually because you're gonna i know what's gonna happen now well, no don't say that people will basically say now that you've basically sent an army of people to threaten people Goodbye. i didn't mean that everyone it was a it was a it was a joke it was a metaphor it was yeah that's what i meant all right disclaimer. <laughs> um 
And uh, and Sean has exceeded very high expectations for this interview, and they were already high. Well done. You didn't let the side down. Thank Thanks. you, Sean. Lots of love. And do follow Sean, if you're not already, on Instagram and Twitter, where the content is always... <laughs> Lots of love, Sean. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you got a lot out of that. And uh, do support us. Keep this, keep this all afloat on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84 or one-off donation in the description of the podcast. Uh, and do subscribe, leave us some stars, spread the love, and I will speak to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.